I'm Charlie Wilmot. I'm David Todd. And welcome to the Bucks Dugout Podcast. Welcome to the Bucks Dugout Podcast. I'm David Todd. He's Charlie Wilmoth, and today, special guest star, Wilbur Miller. Uh, guys, welcome. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. How are you guys doing? Good. Wilbur, thanks for joining us. And the topic today, let's lead off with really the Pirates collapse has changed, I, I think, people's view of the front office and and uh, and manager Clint Hurdle here over the last six weeks. It's hard to believe that uh, when we sat around in July, that by the time September rolled around mid-September, the Pirates would still be in the race, technically, and we'd be talking about, uh, is there going to be a major overhaul in the front office? And let's start with the front office and leave Hurdle and what's going on on the field out of this uh, to, to start this conversation. Charlie, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, the security of Neil Huntington and members of his staff? Well, just... It's going to be tough for the Pirates to really do anything. If they, if they want to make changes, it's going to be hard for them to make them from a PR perspective if the Pirates do have a winning season. I think that would change people's opinions considerably. But, you know, it, it's it's funny. You know, our opinions really should not change very much based on how the Pirates play this month. And when they're winning, it's it feels like, you know, everything's going fine. And when they're losing, it feels like a disaster and somebody, you know, we have to take somebody's head. But I think just starting to sort of step back from it, um, you know, this is a situation that really has a lot to do with the minor leagues. The The talent level of the team um, now in 2012 is, is not that good. If we're being realistic about it, it's, it's a team that's really struggling, you know, to stay afloat in a division and a league that is not very good. But if you look at the minor leagues, that that's really where it's at right now and really where the future of the organization is at. And I, I think they've done fairly well with with uh, you know their higher picks and with uh, players they've signed out of Latin America, but they've spent a ton of money on picks um, after the first round that, that have not turned out so well. Yeah, I pretty much agree. I you know, as far as I mean as far as the situation in the front office is concerned, I you know, it, it is kinda it is a real artificial uh, barometer to say, well, it, it makes a big difference whether they end up with a 20th straight losing season or not. But the fact is, I think it does. In the real world, it does. And I suspect it will for the Pirates. And I, I don't really have a problem with that, to tell you the truth. I just, you know, I think it would be kind of impossible to fire Huntington if they end up with a winning season. But in the minor leagues, and that ought to be a, a part of the calculation, you know, I don't think they're where they ought to be. I mean, I don't think it's a disaster. It's this isn't. It's not Dave Littlefield's farm system, but I really don't think where they should. They're at the point they should be given what they've committed to it. Uh, yeah, I think we're we're all of the same mind here on this. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about this team right now is they're 15 games in the season and they're 74 and 73, and we don't know how the future is going to play out. But if they go as unlikely as it sounds. If they were to go 10-5 and five here, this team's going to finish with 84 wins, 12 games above last year's number. It's going to be the first team, we all know the numbers, over 500 in 20 years. And yet there'll still be some discussion about whether these guys should hold their jobs. Uh, is, is, it, uh, is it a non-starter, guys? And I'll start with you, Wilbur. Is it a non-starter to consider uh, firing either the general manager or the manager if they win 81 or more games? Or can you still have the conversation? I think it's... As far as Huntington's concerned, I think it's a non-starter. I, th I think it's just too hard, given 
what he inherited, which was possibly the biggest disaster that any general manager has has inherited in the modern age. And you know, if he manages to get if the team manages to finish over five hundred, I think just from I don't know if I call it a PR standpoint or what, but I just think that like the karma would be bad of you if you fired him at that stage. Um, now looking at other guys, that's a different matter. Uh, the other guys, you mean Greg Smith and whomever? Yeah, I to me the folk I tend to think mainly about Greg Smith because the truth is we don't really know. There's been some talk about well their their player development system, meaning the minor league coaching, really is is terrible and. I get no way to evaluate that because the only specifics we ever get are, you know, they they discourage Tony Sanchez from getting up being on Twitter. Well, Wilbur, the interesting thing there is the people writing about it have no idea about it either. I mean, there is a lot of bluster here in Pittsburgh with people saying, you know, what they do is a guy misses a bunt or he rounds first too aggressively, and all of a sudden everybody's fundamentals are terrible and they're not yeah. teaching it, which, you know, uh, there's no way for the Pirates to counteract that type of stuff. Neil Huntington can't afford to comment on that. It's just a PR disaster. So I, you know, I don't know. It's a little bit like when Dayon got after, got after them for having the Navy SEALs in for three days of training when they're going to be down there for six weeks. Uh, how, how do you how do you counteract uh, that kind of frontal attack? I don't know the answer. But Charlie, I assume you're kind of on the same page there about Huntington, or you think it, it, it's something you would still consider? It, it's something I might consider, um, but but I, I do think that the for PR reasons it would be tough. That it, it's a sort of separate question from whether it's the right baseball decision. But you well, can let just let me change it to you then. If they go five and ten, and eighty one's not the number, and and that's not necessarily the issue. Uh, if we take that off the table, what's the answer? I think I think I would I would probably lean towards uh, letting Huntington and and Greg Smith go and. And, and that's it's kind of a close decision. I, th- I think that um, a lot of the things Huntington's been attacked for are things he doesn't really deserve to be attacked for. Uh, but in the end, I think what what's going to do him in is just you know all this money and opportunity in the draft. It, it so much of it looks to have been squandered at this point. Uh, Wilbur, does the five and ten answer and the Pirates finishing with seventy eight or eighty wins change your view? Yeah, and and frankly, I don't have as much. I don't find it as close a question as uh, Charlie does. I, if they finish the losing record, I would definitely fire the, the general manager. I, the, the thing is, people people tend to focus on all these silly little things, like trades that happened five years ago, or, or, uh, you know, a lot of the free agent the, signings. Is, uh, yeah, which were, I mean, now those are less whole, silly actually, little things. As a whole, I actually do find the free agent signings kind of disturbing, but. But, you know, looking at individual ones or something doesn't really get you anywhere. But to me, it's just a matter of he's had five years and they're, st- and they're still losing. I actually am not one of these people who thinks that, well, he needed 10 years or something like that. I I think historically, now I, I really, it's been a long time since I looked at this, but historically, when general managers take over really bad teams, the ones who five, six years later are still losing – they never are successful. The, the ones who are successful usually turn it around in two or three years. Uh, I mean, it, interesting thought. Uh, Wilbur, let, let me ask you as a as a fan and somebody who follows the team as closely as you do, does it impact you significantly whether they win 80, 80 81, or 82 games this year? They, I, they need to win 81. 
I, I mean, if really, if I was the owner, I, I would find it just too difficult if he did not have a losing season. But if he did, um, yeah, I'd fire him because but, but, I basically uh, you, what this kind of reflects is I've already kind of made up my mind that I don't think Neil Huntington is a good enough general manager. But uh, just about t- taking Huntington out of the equation, you as a fan, does it matter to you whether they win 80, 81 or 82 games? Yeah, I'm sick of this crap. <laughs> really. <laughs> I mean, I mean, to ask me at the beginning of the season, and I'd say, well, you know, I really just want to see progress, which could be defined in other ways. But we're 15 games away from the end of the season. Three weeks ago, there were 16 games above 500. And now they're looking at what I think is, I think there's virtually no chance of them finishing at 500. I mean, the way they're playing, I'm not sure they'll win 77 games. Charlie, that takes us back to our, our very first or third podcast, whatever, when we talked about uh, how many wins the team would have. And I think you were in the in the 74, 75 range, if I remember correctly. I think I was at 69. And one of the things, I guess, when I step back and look is there's a reason I thought 69. And there's a reason all the pundits said this team would win between, you know, 68 and 75 games. And it's just what I say every day on, on air is this team's not that talented. And so then the question is, well, why aren't they any more talented? I think this goes back to the draft draft question and then when you talk about the manager is the fact that he got him to 16 games over 500 is that really the accomplishment and the fact that they are where they are now is not doesn't rest uh so squarely on clint hurdle's shoulders i i don't know you know what in this you can you can attribute to hurdle except in in that he is impacting games with his with his tactical decisions in a way that i mean he's really contributed actually to this Yes, to this that's recent the point. Yeah. Of, of terrible games, I, you know. As far as him being a leader, though, I, you know, as a leader, I believe in him. Um, as a tactician, I don't really believe in him at all. Uh, and the question is, is how you balance that. I, I don't think this this team looks like a lot of the really bad pirate teams that we've seen in the past. In that, they still basically seem to be trying, and so I think that reflects well on Huntington. Uh, but you know, ultimately, on hurdle. The, on hurdle? Yeah, on hurdle, but yeah, again, I mean, ultimately the question is, is you know, how much of his his bad tactical managing the Pirates can really take? Wilbur, yeah, I don't think they can take a lot. I, you know, <laughs> it's kind of funny because it's just the way they're playing now. It's just this uncanny thing where the guys will play well until they come, until there's a critical moment in the game, and then they'll always screw up. Whether it's you know whatever it takes, whether it's a bad defensive play or failing to get a guy in after a leadoff triple or or the bullpen, another bullpen blow-up. That's really been about the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they all seem to just manage to do the worst thing at the at the most important time. And it's like hurdles in the slump with the rest of them. And every time he comes to a critical decision point, he makes some kind of insane or, or just indefensible decision or, or just completely baffling, like putting in a pinch runner for Garrett Jones when he's on first and the tying run is on second. Yes. That's a weird. Good example. That is so weird. Well, I, again, I think we're on the same page in terms of Hurdle's in-game strategy. It, to me, it's been mind-blowing uh, the last six weeks. And, again, uh, one of the things that I really don't understand in baseball is they should have these guys, and they should do this in the NFL and, and college football as well, they should have coaches sit and go through simulation after simulation after simulation, and managers should do the same thing and see the results of their, uh, of their work and understand that – you know, I just really I get that Clint's in the dugout. I get that he has 40 years of experience and he sees maybe how a player 
uh, reacts during the day and maybe physically feels better or worse. But really, gut feel to me is just such a uh, – the fact that he has 40 years of experience, it makes it almost unassailable to attack him. But it just to me is just not it's just not a justifiable answer. It just well, isn't. it's it's also just not much of a crutch to lean on when none of the crazy looking things he's trying are working. <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, let's uh, we we brought Wilbur on to not only get his thoughts on that, but talk about the minor league season. And Wilbur, first of all, uh, I know from Charlie and I and all the people who read Bucks Dugout, thanks so much for the work you did during the season. Fantastic updates, uh, keeping us up abreast of what was going on with all the minor league teams. So that's very much appreciated. And let, let's start uh, at, at the bottom and work our way up. And the, the Gulf Coast League, you told us before we pop, before we uh, started uh, recording, is a team that really excites you, uh, maybe of all the Pirate minor league affiliations. Yeah, well, you know, it's a little easier, of course, because the players at that level are just starting. And, you know, within two years, half of them are going to flop. So it does, I mean, it's easier to get excited. But what was really interesting about, about this team is that even at that low a level, there's usually guys in the team who are, you know, who are playing positions regularly who you know aren't going anywhere. And this team actually had more guys than they had positions for, you know, more guys who were, who were worth playing who could go somewhere. And the, the guy who lost out really was Stetson Alley, who has, now he really does have a lot of power potential, but when they got in the playoffs, he wasn't playing. He sat on the bench because... They had other guys they wanted to play. Who on that team really, really impresses you? Well, I mean, I can, I can actually relay a little because when I was down there recently, I was down there near the end of their season, there was a scout who had been following them for, I think, about a week. And he really liked, uh, and he, he, he really liked, they were playing the Phillies, and he clearly liked the Pirates a lot better than the Phillies players. And he, he really liked Max Moroff, Wyatt Matheson, and Dilson Herrera. In fact, he's trying. He's trying to get photos of him, and every time he, or trying to get video of him, and every time he did, they'd get hit with a pitch or something. And <laughs> stuff. It was kind of funny, but he really liked those guys, and I did too. Um, more often, Matheson both have a really good approach at the plate. They don't, they don't swing at a lot of. They don't take bad swings. Neither one of them swings at bad pitches, at least from what I saw, which was two games. Um, and Herrera seems to have, for a guy who's not big. He seems to have pretty good power. So, I mean, they're the most interesting guys. But really, most of their lineup is they, you know, they had the two outfielders, uh, Elvis Escobar and Harold Ramirez, who were, they're just 17 years old. And they were, they were holding their own. That's about all you can say. But considering that they're 17 and they're playing against guys who mostly are in like the 18 to 21 age range, uh, considering how quickly, you know, young men mature at that age, that was pretty impressive. So all those guys look pretty good. And then there were some others that I didn't get much of a look at, like Kevin Ross, who's a, a big guy who looks like he might have some power. Did you get to see any of the pitchers? Okay, the pitchers aren't – that's not really – it wasn't the strength of that team. I don't think they have a lot of pitching prospects. The the, the guys I saw are kind of interesting are probably Brighton Trapagne, who's one of these rare guys whose stuff has actually gotten better. You know, he was throwing in the high 80s, I think, when they drafted him. And he's up around. I saw him pitch in relief, and he's throwing like 93 and, and seemed to have a pretty good slider. And then there's the, the guy from, uh, <laughs> I guess he's from Estonia, uh, Dovidas Navaroskas. And he actually. Nice job up. there. Nice job, Wilbur. I, I think he is from Lithuania, though. Oh, li I'm sorry. That's right. It's Lithuania. And he gets up to like 95. In fact, the scout who was there told me he was hitting 95 pretty regularly 
the last time he'd seen him. Then when I saw him, he started off at like 89, but eventually he got up to about 95 again. So he seems to have a real good arm. He's kind of wild, but not terribly, not Stetson Alley wild. Uh, let's go to State College, where all hell seems to have broken loose for the last <laughs> five days. And, and uh, you know, when guys start rearranging their tweets and saying different things, I think uh, there was first the understanding that things didn't get done. And then from the reporting, it sounded a bit odd. And now uh, I posted some things after Charlie did, and we've had some different conversations actually on the site about this. But maybe, Charlie, I don't know if you actually had the latest information, but it sounds like Rob Beer Temple changed his tweet and maybe you can just bring us up to speed where things are. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess the the, the original uh, thing that Beer Temple wrote said that that uh, state college executives were, you know, wanting to be involved in things like pitch counts and innings limits, which are not, you know, not things that they should be at all concerned about. Uh, and if that's the case, then, you know, the, the Pirates really aren't at fault for not answering their communications about those things. So that's what Beer Temple originally reported. It sounded like then he 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 actually just changed what he had written and took it all and took all reference to that out. So I don't think anybody really knows exactly what's going on with that. But I, I'm not sure it matters much. You know, they're going to be in Jamestown for a year or two, and then ultimately they're probably going to be in Morgantown, which is which is probably where they want to be. Yeah, I would guess that's really they prefer that. It's a bit closer, and I think they're really trying to court that market more. Uh, that's Bob Bob Dunning's hometown, but no, no, he, he's, obviously... he's from Wheeling, actually. Uh, Wheeling. All right, close. Well, Are they close, close, Charlie? Does it matter? Well, I mean, yeah, it's 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 an hour in the wrong direction, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Wilbur, everybody wants to know about Luis Heredia. Uh, when I talked to Keith Law, the thing he was interested in watching wasn't Heredia's strikeouts; it was his walk level. Um, what were your thoughts on his performance this year as a 17-year-old? I, you know, it's hard to know what to think because it's a 17-year-old pitching at that level is is pretty radical. And, yeah, this, I, I imagine the thing with the walks, I assume what, is, what Keith Law is thinking is that if he's repeating his motion, if he's not walking people, then he's repeating his motion, which for a 17-year-old, especially a 17-year-old who's still growing and who's like six foot seven now, is uh, that's really pretty good progress, so. You know, I assume that's what he's thinking of, and we shouldn't be too concerned about the strikeout total not being their guy. But I think for a 17-year-old at that level to be pitching that well is pretty remarkable. You know, I, I saw uh, Wilbur. I saw a state college play earlier this year. wasn't You know, their their lineup is I would uh, I would say overly they were not a, a, an incredibly impressive team. But I mean, the the one guy who's going to stick out in that lineup is Barrett Barnes, who was their the top draft pick they signed last year. What's your opinion on him? He had a he had this really slow start, but then he really was starting to hit, and and then he got hurt, and and that's kind of what happened with State College. Is they had two guys who are really interesting. One is Barnes, and the other was Tyler Gaffney, and they both got hurt. What's the story with Gaffney? I mean, why, why did he sign with the Pirates? I mean, given that he was on Stanford's football team, had another had another year he could have played there. I saw an interview with him. He said he wanted to play baseball. He wanted to get started on a pro career. So uh, That's a good answer. <laughs> he obviously isn't afraid of contact. That's the fascinating thing about him is he got hit with, with pitches about – he was getting hit with pitches about once every other game, which is unreal. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he can keep that up and stay alive, but – who who else caught your eye at uh, at State College for the hit, hitting side? Nobody. 
That's it. Well, there was one guy I was kind of interested in. They had this guy, Raul Fortunato, who had this huge breakout year at a, at a somewhat late age last year in the Dominican Summer League. And I think he was slated to be a regular outfielder this year. And he played like four games and got hurt and missed the rest of the year. I would like to have seen him because he got off to a good start. All right, let's go to West Virginia. Uh, obviously, there are two there in Polanco and Hanson that, you know, I don't know that they completely came out of the blue, but you had to be a pretty hardcore Pirate fan to have them on your radar coming into the season. Now they're in most people's top 100 list. They're certainly in everybody's top 10 Pirates prospects list. Is there more to add, uh, Wilbur, in terms of what we already know? And what are the steps that they need to take to progress quickly through the system? Yeah, they've been talked about a lot. I don't know if there's a lot more to say. Hanson has to stop. Well, he actually did. His error rate went way down as the season went along. But he also didn't hit as well late in the season. I, I don't know. He might have just got worn out because I don't think he's played anywhere near that many games. And Polanco, of course, is a guy who... You know, if, if you watched him at spring training the past couple of years, he looked like a very exciting player. Tall uh, outfielder, obviously very fast and athletic, very toolsy, but didn't really have the statistical profile to back that up until until this year. So I, I guess what I would wonder about him is, you know, are the do the successes of, of Hanson and Polanco help to offset in any way the, the, the idea that the problem with the Pirates minor league system is, is a developmental one rather than a problem with the guys they're drafting. Yeah, you know, it at least shows that they didn't wreck these guys. And so that's something. <laughs> with, with Polanco, I, I think with him, uh, he, I, think he's, I think he could end up on a very different track from Hanson because he's a lot less raw. I, mean, I think mainly what happened with him was that, is it like three years ago, he was a really, even two years ago, he was a really skinny guy. I think he's still listed because he's 6'4", 6'5", and he's, I think he's still listed at something ridiculous, like 170. and But he's, he's really probably more like 200 now. And I think a lot that happened with him is he just got a lot stronger. I think he's got better bat speed now. And uh, and that probably accounts for a lot of his development. But the, And the nice thing is that he's, he's a lot bigger, but he's still, just, he's still very fast. So, But you know, I could see him moving at a faster track than Hanson because he's a He's a much less raw player. He's, he's got better play dis- discipline, and and he's got better base stealing skills. But I mean, the thing is, at least, and, and you know, I don't know how much of that's coaching or how much of it is just he's got the better instincts for the game. But they at least didn't mess him up. And and I, I think it's kind of an example that, that that they put people pay too much attention to developmental issues, and and guys like Hanson and Polanco, they're just talented. And, the talent's going to come through if it's there. Anybody else on that West Virginia team who really impresses you? Well, the, the guy that, that we all wanted to see missed almost the whole year, and that yeah. was Bell. And, you know, that was unfortunate because he's just a different sort of player entirely. He has tremendous bat speed, and, and I really would have liked to see if uh, to see what would have happened. You know, he was... He was struggling a little early in the year, but he was a kid right out of high school playing full season ball. And I like would, would like to have seen what happened if if he'd gotten a full a full season in and and gotten a chance to to acclimate to professional pitching. To move up to to Bradenton now, I mean, it was this a uh, uh, you know, team that that at the beginning of the year you had the two top 
prospects in the organization pitching there. But after they left, it was a bit of a frustrating team to watch or pay attention to anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, after Cole left, it was because after like a good first month or so, Tyon spent most of his time there just getting clobbered. And and that made it doubly that made it doubly frustrating. He was about the only player there, the only really exciting player there. And, you know, for most of the season there, he didn't do well. And, you know, other than him, there was, there was just nobody, nobody of a, of a real, of a, who was a real first tier prospect. And, and in fact, there are a lot of guys there who looked like they might turn into something and they pretty, pretty uniformly did not. You're talking about players like Mel Rojas, Drew Maggi, the guys who who looked at the beginning of the season like they might, you know, were, were maybe a bigger bonus or earlier round players who looked like they might be prospects but didn't really show a whole lot this year. Yeah, like Rojas pretty much had the same year he did last year. And Maggi got promoted to Altoona, and, and they used him as a utility guy, which tells me that the Pirates don't think he's going to be a prospect. Um, the, I mean, the one guy who did have – and well, and, and then there's Gift. And Lipe, who has major league defensive skills, but he's still struggling pretty severely with the off-speed stuff. And and you know you'd like to see him start to to correct that problem because he's got other his speed and defensive ability are are really pretty significant. So if you just have to hit a little to to advance. I guess if there's anybody who who people would say, well, what about this guy? It would be Alex Dickerson who who. You know, some people might categorize as a, a as a, a top uh, or a higher tier prospect, but he's somebody that I I'm not really sold on, um, just based on the fact that he's he's coming from a big college program. He's already 22 and he spent the whole year at class, uh, you know, high class A. And I gather you're not you're not overly impressed with him either. No, I mean it's it's nice, and I suppose he could break out next year. But when I, I see these guys from these college programs. You know, a guy who was a, an advanced hitter in, in college, and, and they're going this this one year, one level per year thing. I, I just, I really think that guys that age and that advanced, if if they're really going to be the kind of prospect who can be a, a first string player in the major leagues, they're going to advance quickly. You're going to spend a half a year at the level and and move up quickly. And so, you know, some people sort of look at his numbers and say, oh, that's pretty good. And, and to me, pretty good is, is really not what you're looking for. You're looking for a guy, especially in Class A, you're looking for him to dominate. And if he's not dominating, then pretty much what you've probably got is another guy like Matt Haig or Chase Darnold or Jordy Mercer, who's just going to be, you know, he might make the majors, but he's not going to really do anything there. And the Pirates obviously don't expect any of those guys to do anything. To move up to Altoona then, I mean, arguably, maybe the most exciting prospect at, at Altoona was a reliever, Vic Black, probably the best relief prospect in the organization. Yeah, he. Uh, I mean, he's gonna. Have, he, he doesn't throw enough strikes yet, but it's that strikeout rate, which was, I think, some something like thirteen per nine innings, which you know you don't see a lot of that in the Pirate system, and and so I I think he, I think he has far more potential than guys like uh, Vic Black or, or even Justin Wilson, or excuse me, guys like Brian Morris. And, and Justin Wilson. Most of the rest of the uh, the Altoona roster, I mean, you, you had Robbie Grossman there for part of the year until he was traded. You had Tony Sanchez and Brock Holt there for part of the year. Uh, Matt Curry, but really not not a star-studded roster in terms of, uh, you know, top-grade prospects. Yeah, guys that, that you know, you kind of 
you know, the guy I really kind of hoped would start to adapt better was was Jarrett Cunningham. He did not have a good year at all. But you did have Alberto Santos, who hit for a very high average. And, and uh, of course, he missed over half the year. But he's somebody who I kind of hope could, if he keeps hitting like that, could reach the majors as a as a utility guy because the Pirates pretty much throughout Neil Huntington's tenure have just not had guys coming off the bench who could hit. You see him sort of being like a, a Rob McCoviak type of player or something like that. That's what, I, that's what I'd like to see. I, I don't think he's going to have the power McCoviak did, but but yeah, that's what I'd like to see. People don't exactly remember McCoviak in glowing terms, but he was actually a, he was a good bench player. He was a very useful player for a lot of years, and it'd be nice to have somebody like that again. Uh, one one player at Altoona who doesn't you know really jump off the page or you know has never really um, been viewed as a top prospect, but who keeps plugging along and putting up good numbers is Phil Irwin. How do you see his his future shaping up? Well, his his numbers got more than good at the end of the year. Um, you know, I've seen him a couple of times, and he's your basic finesse pitcher. He works both sides of the plate and throws the basic four pitches. But he seems to do it really well because I mean, he missed the part of the start of the season with uh, an injury, and but once he came back, he uh, really improved rapidly and ended up in in uh, AAA and pitching really well and striking out over a batter an inning there. And you know, a guy he doesn't have outstanding stuff, but if he can strike out over a batter an inning in AAA, then he probably does have some potential. And I figure. Yeah, he's eligible for Rule Five, and they'll undoubtedly put him on the roster and and uh, this fall, and he'll be in spring training, and he'll be, I assume, in competition for those that sort of sixth, seventh, and eighth starter job, which they always get down to those guys sooner or later. Yeah. So he probably has a good chance of being in the major leagues at some point next year. Uh, and then Wilbur, Indianapolis, uh, you know. I think we know what we have there. We saw a lot of guys bounce around, but let me specifically ask you about Tony Sanchez because the Pirates catching situation has gone from not so good to having Johnny Bench back there and Michael McHenry and into him moving back into Michael McHenry and Rod Barajas being historically bad at throwing out runners. I think uh, I just saw a number that since 2000, since the stat has been being kept by Elias, 90 attempts, he is uh, at 6.7. He is the lowest uh, on record. So uh, everybody had high hopes for Sanchez. It seems almost like that ship has sailed. But is he going to be the guy who's the backup catcher in Pittsburgh next year? No, they won't. I don't think that if they were inclined to go with, with Mike McHenry as their number one catcher, they'd have done it by now. They, they clearly don't think that he fits that role. And I, I could see going into the season with a Sanchez-McHenry job share, but I don't think they'll do it. I think they're going to want a veteran catcher. And, you know, I just have this terrible feeling they're going to bring Barajas back, although I, I suspect they won't. They always, Huntington always talks like, well, I might bring this or that guy back, but he never does. So I, I suspect they will not, but I'm afraid they'll probably go out and look for another veteran catcher to tide them over to another year to give Sanchez more time in AAA, and hopefully he'll start to hit better. Yeah, I mean, you you think that they wouldn't do the Sanchez, that they wouldn't use Sanchez just as a backup catcher in his first year as, in the big league, since even though it's clear to us that that's what that's probably his likely career path, I don't know if they're willing to sort of acknowledge that yet. 
I, I wouldn't think. Yeah, of course. Twenty five years old. I mean, how much longer are you going to wait? No, yeah, I, I'm with you, but I, I would think that they would they would see it as as preferable to to let him spend a little bit more time in AAA, hope a light comes on, and then and then maybe you've got a starting catcher on your hands. I mean, I. I don't. I, that's probably the way they're thinking of it, given given that they invested, you know, the fourth overall pick in the draft on him. It, it could be, but I, you know, if it was me, I'd think very seriously about just a job share. I don't. I don't have this with catcher. I don't see why you have to have a first string catcher. I think catchers do pretty well sometimes. Like remember Michael Valier and Don Slot. They they pretty much shared the job, and that worked out really well. I just don't see why somebody has to be the first string catcher. I think. They should at least consider just Sanchez and McHenry share the job, and playing time gets juggled as as as, as developments warrant. But I don't think they'll do that. I, my gut feeling is they won't do that. Uh, anybody else that uh, isn't on the main radar at that that might have escaped us? I, I think we've all. Uh, I've been mildly uh, enamored of Chris LaRue. You had Vanden Herc come on, come on late in the season and pitch very well. But those guys are older guys who I think they'll probably get a shot to do something in spring training, but we'll see what happens. But is there, is it, I mean, is there anything else there that's interesting? I think everybody, pretty much everybody's up now. The, the one guy that I kind of like that is not is, is Yamaiko Navarro. Right. And I don't know if that's because of his DUI or, or what. I mean, he has not hit in the, in the very limited chances he's had in the majors, but he hit well in AAA. He out hit Starling Marte, or at least he had a higher OPS. And you know he can he can kind of play a lot of positions, or at least you can put him out there. And I and I'd like to you know I really want to see them get a guy on the bench who can hit the ball. And and particularly with this team, it would help if it was a right-handed hitter. So I'm real disappointed they didn't call him up, but they may have, you know, there may be a disciplinary purpose behind it. I don't know. There have been plenty of times in the last couple of weeks when I thought they could have used him. Well, Wilbur, that's good stuff. A good. Uh a good summary of what's been going on for those who wanted a big picture type thing. I, as you, as I said, thanks for all the work on writing the wrap ups on a nightly basis. Uh, I know that's more than, uh, <laughs> that, that can be a tedious chore at times having done it myself <laughs> in the past, but, uh, Charlie, uh, the, the pirates play Milwaukee tonight. Kyle McPherson gets to go against Marco Estrada. They're not technically out, but I mean, if they lose this game, they're done. But this the game is obviously incredibly significant for the Brewers as well. If you're thinking about this, uh, and Wilbur, this to you as well, uh, the Cardinals seem to be the likely candidate to be the wild card. But are the Brewers clearly the second second uh, best team in the group? I, I think so. I mean, I think if you especially if you factor in the way they've they've played recently and the way they've gotten the, how much mileage they've gotten out of guys like Estrada and, and guys like Mike Fires, yeah, I, I think they're. The better team than than the Pirates, probably the better team than the Dodgers. So, yeah, I, w- I would say that 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 after St. Louis, they would be the best team involved. Well, being hot counts for an awful lot at this time of year. Yep. And especially, you know, the National League is a very weak league. In fact, my theory, which I mentioned before, is that the reason the Pirates seem to have improved the last two years has more to do with the National League getting worse than it does with the Pirates getting better. But you're dealing with very flawed teams when you're talking about St. Louis and the Dodgers and, and Milwaukee. And with teams like that, getting really hot can count for an awful lot. Like if they were fighting with the Nationals, like for instance, I think the Nationals just got just got swept by the Braves, but the Nationals are a really good team. 
with a loaded pitching staff, even without Strasburg. And, you know, if you're competing with them, getting hot probably wouldn't be enough. But competing with a team like the Cardinals or the Dodgers, just being the hot hand is, uh, to me, that makes them the favorite. And when you combine this extra playoff spot with the, the National League being such a weak league at this point, it's really reached sort of like NHL or NBA levels in terms of mediocre teams getting to, to the playoffs or at least having shots at the playoffs. And Well, heck yeah. Look, the Pirates could almost make it. So Well, it's it's to, to, to me it's almost embarrassing. It's like you, you can't you, – you know, you want to like just write off the season and say, okay, let's go get them next year. Uh, because the team has played so badly for so long, and you can't do it because somehow they're still technically in this in this playoff race. And to me, it seems kind of farcical, and I'm and I'm just you know kind of kind of regretting it. Yeah, and, and what may increasingly happen is you teams will regret it because I mean the Brewers started dumping players, and now all of a sudden they're in it, <laughs> and and it's gonna it'll probably have some impact further down the road too because the Brewers obviously didn't expect to be in it. I mean, if they did, they'd. Have, held on to Zach Greinke, but n- nobody could predict not only the Pir- I mean, I guess maybe you could predict the Pirates falling completely to pieces, but nobody could predict the Dodgers and Cardinals playing so badly recently. So. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, the, the Cardinals, uh, the fact that they just haven't, they just haven't seized the, the playoff spot, which seems to be rightfully theirs, is, is a big part of this. Or the Dodgers who loaded up on Ned, Ned Coletti, boy, if you give him any money at all, it's going out the window as soon as, he, as soon as he can get the window open. And and I think the Dodgers are really going to regret all those guys that they acquired. That's not working. All right. Well, uh, we seem to have lost David. Um, had had plenty of our, our technical issues in this in this conversation, but it's been a, a great talk about, about the minor leagues. And, and uh, again, thanks for um, Wilbur to, for contributing here and, and for, for helping us out with the minor league updates throughout the season. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Bucks Dugout podcast. Follow us on the site at uh, BucksDugout.com. I'm on Twitter at BucksDugout. David's on Twitter at DTOnPirates. We'll catch you next time.